0: The Paul Leslie Hour. Helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? I'm glad to have you with us on another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. This is episode number 141 of the podcast, and it features an interview with poet Michael S. Harper. Michael S. Harper was the Poet Laureate of Rhode Island from 1988 to 1993. He has since passed away. This interview was recorded a few years back. He was born in 1938. He passed away in 2016. You'll hear that the audio quality of this interview is not perfect. This was before I had a little bit more money for a nicer microphone. But when I listen to this, I think about how important it is to get people's stories, to record the human voice. Michael S. Harper responded to a letter that I wrote. Here I was, some guy, and nobody, asking the poet laureate of Rhode Island for an interview, and he responded in kind. Michael S. Harper is someone who published ten books of poetry. He was considered one of the most prominent people in African American literature, And his work is an example of something called jazz poetry. As you're going to hear in the interview, he was very influenced by jazz music. He was a lover of John Coltrane. He mentioned in the interview about how he learned some of the phrasing from jazz music. He was also a teacher. Michael S. Harper was an English professor at Brown University. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Speaking of people and how important they are, I can't help but think that I've been very, very blessed to meet so many very interesting people. I really see ambition and fire in a lot of the people that I meet. They move into the city, they have these dreams, and they go about working to make them happen. I want to mention somebody, Landon Lewis. He moved to the A to work on his IMDB. He is someone who's inspired me a lot always there with a smile and a laugh. He's been a source of optimism. He's going on to another chapter in his life, and I thought I would play this interview for everyone out there, but Landon, this one is for you. I hope you enjoy the interview with Michael S. Harper.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest is a poet. His name is Michael S. Harper. It's a great pleasure. Who is the real
2: Michael S. Hartler? Oh, I guess that's a five-year-old boy who grew up in his grandparent's house in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, New York, that is. And when I think about my childhood, I think about the house I was born in, the same place that my mother was born in, Brooklyn, New York. And what was life like growing up in Brooklyn? World War II? I was born in 1938, so when I got to a certain kind of consciousness, it was probably... Somewhere between my brother's birthday and my sister's birthday. My brother was born in 41 and my sister was born in 43. And I was the oldest and I was responsible for both of them because my grandmother, who was living with us, had a series of strokes and she finally died in 1947. Did you enjoy reading as a young person? Well, I was taught to read by my mother before I went to school. And the first book I remember, A Thousand and One Nights the story of Scheherazade. In fact, I used to call my sister, who's five years younger than me, I used to call her Scheherazade. So that's where it comes from. What about early examples of writing? Early examples of writing? Well, I went to kindergarten. You can imagine what kindergarten was like when I could already read. This gave me a terrific advantage in, in one way or another. And I guess when, you, when you're when you taught by, your, by either one of your parents, they become your first teacher other than going to class, going back and forth, I don't remember kindergarten being traumatic in any way. And I think it's because of preparation. Hmm. I wasn't surprised that they were expecting me to do things. And of course, when World War II was in operation, the whole ambience was full of people in uniforms and all that sort of thing. And my parents didn't know, but I started riding the subway when I was five years old without their knowledge. So I was going you know from borough to borough and from Brooklyn to Manhattan and all kinds of places like that when i was a little kid when you were doing this on the subway were you afraid i mean or were you just totally confident no i never had a I never had any fear and one of the things is is that during that period of time if you stopped anybody let's say if you were lost if you stopped anybody who was an adult it might be a policeman it might not any adult felt a responsibility to make sure that the kid who was lost got sent somewhere, taken somewhere. They would either take you themselves or they would introduce you to somebody who could rescue you in, in one way or another. That might be a policeman, but no, it might not. So, hmm. uh, as, as I remember, as five, six, seven years old, I had no fear and I, I was already riding not only the subway, but I would take the ferry from Battery Park to Staten Island. And what were you doing? I was on an adventure. I left my brother at home because my brother would have got me caught. He was three years younger and much more venturesome than me, but I was venturesome enough, you know, riding around on subways and ferries and so on without anybody's, without anybody's knowledge. That was adventure for me, plenty. That's fascinating. How did you discover poetry? Well, I guess I was read to a lot when I was a child. Either my grandmother read to me or my parents. My father didn't read too much because he was working two jobs. He was working in the post office and he was also going to law school. Mostly my mother and my grandmother who read to me, and I've never recovered from it, actually. I mean, you know, I don't think anything is uh, more heartwarming, anything more transcendent than somebody who you care about reading to you. So I was read to as a child. And, of course, since I was the first grandson in the family, everybody read to me. My aunts read to me, you know, my relatives. All of these people were adults.
1: When did you begin to identify
2: yourself as a poet? Oh, I don't think that was, certainly that was after high school, I would think. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was so much that I wasn't interested in poetry, or I wasn't interested in reading and writing. But the business of having a vocation, like writing poetry, that didn't come until I had been, first of all, been moved, or moved with a family to Los Angeles, which I did when I was 13, 1951, and pretty much Junior high school and college were kind of like a blur. What I mean by blur is that I guess that I always had in the back of my mind returning to my original place of origin. And as as I used to say to people, you know, when they used to ask me provocative questions, I would say, well, I lost my first neighborhood. First neighborhood, of course, was Brooklyn. And I guess that, that was a kind of euphemism, maybe. I didn't spell out what losing one's neighborhood was about. I just knew I'd lost it. Could you pick any one poet who has been the greatest influence on your work? Greatest influence on my work. As I think now, probably the romantic poets, beginning with Keats. That was probably my most my greatest influence. And of course I didn't read poetry systematically like they do now. I mean you were free to read anywhere you wanted to in any period. And I knew enough about poetry and the English. I mean, I knew that the, the English were, for example, not Americans. I made that distinction. But my my examples, for example, were not Whitman. I mean, I, I knew people that loved Whitman and they might have loved Frost. But I think my first real immersion were with the Romantics. I would say Keats probably. If you could put it
1: into words, what is it that you like most about poetry?
2: Well, I think line length, lineation, the way in which you break a line on a page or on a, perhaps in your head or, you know, I mean, I was—I seem to be sensitive to that. I don't know why my mother wants to stay here for her. This old world ain't been no friend to her. Now, that's a perfect couplet. You know, I can remember being sung to as a little boy by my grandmother whose favorite song was Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. I don't know why this was so, but that's something she sung to me. And she often often hummed it, so I therefore knew and probably associated the kinds of tunes that I heard, the melodies that I heard. And uh, I came from a musical family. You know, people were always singing. My mother was certainly always singing, and my grandmother as well. Well, if at any point you feel like breaking into poem, we encourage that. <laughs> okay, all right. Let me uh, Let me see what I'd like to read to you. I've edited a lot of books in my career, and I sometimes read poems either to myself or to a class or or whatever. I'm going to choose this one. It's called Nightmare Against Responsibility. It is a kind of meditation. When I get to the end of it, I'll read it twice so you can follow. So Nightmare Against Responsibility. And I'll say that W.B. Yeats, who is one of my favorite poets, Used to say in a poem called Responsibilities, in dream begin responsibilities. And since I was a kid, oftentimes influenced by my elders, this probably stuck with me. Anyway, nightmare begins responsibility. I place these numb wrists to the pain, watching white uniforms whisk over him in the tube kept prison. Fear what they will do and experiment. Watch my gloves stick-shifting gasoline hands breathe boxcar inflammation, please. Infirmary tubes distrusting white pink mending paper-thin silken end hairs. Distrusting tubes shrunken his trunk skin cap shaven head. In thighs distrusting white hands picking baboon light. On this son who will not make his second night of this ward-strewn intensive air pocket where his father's asthmatic hymns of night train trained and gone. His mother can only know that he has flown up into essential calm unseen corridor, going box guard home, mama sweet son child, gone downtown into research testing warehouse battery acid, mama sun gone. Me telling her another train tonight, no music, no breath heartbeat in my infinite distrust of them. And of my distrusting self, White doctor who breathed for him all night. Say it for two sons gone. Say nightmare. Say it loud. Pain breaking heart madness. Nightmare begins responsibility. And of my distrusting self. White doctor who breathed for him all night. Say it for two sons gone. Say nightmare. Say it loud. Pain breaking heart madness. Nightmare begins responsibility.
1: Wow. Our special guest is Michael S. Harper. He just did a poem for us. I wanted to talk a little bit about John Coltrane. Tell us about meeting him
2: and his influence on your life. Well, I've uh, heard Coltrane play in live, that is to say, you know, in nightclubs or in concerts or whatever, I would say hundreds of times. The poem that I would say was probably an anthem to me Is a poem called, Here, Where Coltrane Is. This is how the poem goes. Soul and race are private dominions, memories and modal songs, a tenor blossoming, which would paint suffering a clear color, but is not in this Victorian house, without oil, in zero-degree weather, and a 40-mile-an-hour wind. It is all a well-knit family, I love supreme. Oak leaves pile up on walkway and steps, Catholic as apples, in a special mist of clear white children who love my children. I play Alabama on a warped record player, skipping the scratches on your faces over the fibrous conical hairs of plastic under the wooden floors. Dreaming on a train from New York to Philly, You hand out six notes which become an anthem to our memories of you. Oak, birch, maple, apple, cocoa, rubber. For this reason, Martin is dead. For this reason, Malcolm is dead. For this reason, Coltrane is dead. In the eyes of my first son are the browns of these men and their music. Thank you very much for doing that
1: uh, performance. For all the listeners out there, what do you think jazz
2: music has in common with poetry? There's a kind of syncretism. That's an important word to say. There's a syncretism, and there's something that's shared with the human voice. If one, for example, a saxophone, is the perfect instrument for a saxophone, of course, is the human voice. It has the same timbre, the same possibilities, the same range. Even though I'm not a musician, I did play piano when I was young, took piano lessons. I knew that my love for the saxophone, the sound of it, was something that made an, an impact on me, you know, when I was in my childhood. And of course, I, I listened to an, an awful lot of music, big band music. My parents loved big band music. They had a record collection. I heard a lot of live music when I was older, high school. But the most important thing is there's a symmetry between how one would write a poem, recite it, and how one would play a song or an instrument. Now, later on, I became involved and interested in sonics, S-O-N-I-C-S, which is to say the sound that an instrument makes. And all kinds of instruments make sounds, but the one that was most conducive to me, given my range, was a saxophone. Now, you would think that I would play one, but I was more concerned about how it sounded than anything else, and I don't know why I, I didn't become a musician. I guess because I probably couldn't have been as good as I needed to be, given all of the great musicians and all the great music that I heard from the time I was a boy until I was in my early 20s. So, for example, Coltrane was a theme that I've written a lot about. This particular poem, which I read here where Coltrane is, was written in Portland, Oregon, where I was beginning to teach in the late 60s. So, geography and locale meant a lot to me. I mean, if I was in San Francisco, that was one thing. If I was in Portland, it was another. If I was in Champaign-Urbana, that was another. The location of where it was at the time, oftentimes, was simulated into whatever I was likely to write or think about.
1: What is the thing that gets your creative
2: juices going the most? Well, it could be a song. That is to say, it could be something that I've heard either on the radio or in my own... I could be transported, taken to a place that I wouldn't ordinarily go... If I heard a song, for example, Alabama, which is a dirge, and it was about the four black kids that were blown up in an Alabama church, and I can remember hearing that live, Alabama, when, when I didn't even know what the name of it was. Later on, it became connected with these girls who'd blown up, who were blown up in a church. I think it was September 1963. But whatever musicians did in terms of express themselves, was something that made an impact on me, particularly since I listened to so much live music. If Coltrane came to town, let's say in San Francisco, and he played for two weeks, there would not be a single part of his engagement that I would miss. I'd hear every single set that he played, night after night, and even matinees. Matinees would come, let's say, on Sunday afternoon. I'd hear every session that he played. And if he appeared on television, I'd I'd, I'd probably See that presentation. I remember when Ralph Gleason, who was a local critic in San Francisco where I was living at the time, he invited Coltrane to one of his programs and I listened to it. And then later on, we had a correspondence because I had written poems about musicians and he always cautioned me. He would say, Well, you know, you should worry about the copyright of such and such, who sang what, or whatever. Now, critics are always worried about attribution, but if you're an artist, you're not very much concerned about attribution. You just write what comes to you. So even though I realized later on that I was preempting, that is to say, locating myself right in, let's say, a melody that had been sung by someone else, attribution was not a problem, at least in my head. I wasn't stealing for them or borrowing from them. I was just registering what had come my way. Interesting what is your biggest hope my biggest hope you know I've been teaching for 40 years at the Brown University and and even before then before I even got to Brown so I've been teaching a long time and uh, I guess my greatest hope is to continue to teach and to continue to create there is a kind of symbiosis between those two I find now that when I teach and I only teach in the fall But when I teach my classes, I don't seem to write as much. The energy which one needs to compose is all-consuming. And when I'm teaching, that involves other batteries. And even though when I was young and used to teach more preparations, including composition, including remedial English sometimes, I don't have that much stamina or juice anymore. And probably what what that's about is a greater consciousness of how poems should be written. And sometimes I will know what it is I want to say even before I begin. I'll have a sense of what I want to accomplish in a poem. Sometimes it will fall into a certain pattern. Let's say I'm writing a a series of poems in couplets, and then I'll, I'll do that for sometimes years trying to find out what is it that I'm trying to get to. Am I trying to mimic, let's say, a heroic couplet? Well, a heroic couplet, I learned about heroic couplets when I was studying literature in high school and college. So I don't want to be an Alexander Pope. He's been dead for centuries. But at the same time, I realize what it is that other artists, other poets have contributed to what we'll call aesthetic. So that's what I, I, I would say in terms of my hope. I hope I, I have a long enough life so that I get down pretty much what I want to say before I close the book on me. And how long I will be, one can't know. What is your favorite sound? Sound? I would say a saxophone. I mean, you know, whether it's played by Lester Young or whether it's played by Coltrane or whether it's played by Sonny Rollins or whether it's played by Hank Mobley. All of these people not only played their instruments, but they also composed. They also wrote music. And this music has gotten incorporated into my lexicon. For example, a, a Mobley wrote a tune called "I Mode. If I were to think about how that tune was composed, I, you know, I, memory is, is, first of all, with me always. And even though I'm not a, a musician, the tune itself, how it's composed and when, it's important. Are there any dreams you have yet to realize that haven't come to fruition yet? There was a time in my development when a whole book would come to me. I would know what the theme was, and sometimes I would hope that I had enough time. I ran a a literary program, graduate program, for about nine and a half years, and it affected my production, and I oftentimes postponed things that I wanted to do until later. Also, I did a lot of collaboration with musicians in concert, in tours, over the years. I might want to do that again. I might want to go back. Maybe maybe retirement for me would be having a group of musicians and recording things that I wanted to do and haven't done before. Maybe I'd want to do that.
1: What is the best thing about being Michael S. Harper? The best thing?
2: I've had a lot of luck in my life. For example, when I first was offered the job at Brown University, I had to leave my favorite town, San Francisco, in order to take the job. And I thought I'd be here for a year or two, and then I'd move on. Well, of course, that isn't what happened. I've been here since 1970. Maybe it's my destiny. Maybe it wasn't where I was supposed to be. Maybe I'm back on the East Coast where I began. I started out on the East Coast and I lived in San Francisco a long time. Would I go back there? I doubt it. Now, would I visit? Of course. But would I permanently go back? I don't think so. As Epictetus used to say, geography is fate where it is that you grow up and where it is you live. has a certain kind of fate. I guess I believe that. That's interesting.
1: Well, my last question for anyone
2: who's listening to this interview,
1: wherever they are, whenever they hear it, what are your parting
2: words for them? My parting words are in a, a refrain, which I wrote years ago about Bessie Smith, Last Affair. So I'll read it. It's called Last Affair, Bessie's Blues Song, and it's a ballad. The first word of the poem is the severing from the arm, that is to say Bessie Smith's arm, from the torso of her body. The word is disarticulated, which sounds like a medical term, and it is a medical term. Last Affair, Bessie's blues song. Disarticulated arm torn out, large veins cross her shoulder intact, her tourniquet, her blood, in all-white big bands. Can't you see? What love and heartache's done to me. I'm not the same as I used to be. This is my last affair. Mail truck or parked car in the fast lane. A float at 43 on a Mississippi road. 200 pound muscle on her ham bone. Another nigger dead for noon. Can't you see? What love and heartache's done to me. I'm not the same as I used to be. This is my last affair. Fifty-dollar record cut the vein in her neck. Fool about her money, told her black train wreck. White-breast missed her funeral in the same stacked deck. Can't you see what love and heartache's done to me? I'm not the same as I used to be. This is my last affair. Loved a little blackbird, heard she could sing. Martha in her vineyard, tessel in her spring. Bessie had a bad mouth, Bessie had a bad mouth, made my chimes ring, can't you see what love and heartache's done to me? I'm not the same as I used to be, this is my last affair. So, just to follow up on Ralph Gleason, Gleason wrote to me and said, this particular refrain that you're singing is very close to the way in which Billie Holiday recorded this particular song and I said well you know the words have changed but the significance is pretty much the same and of course Billie Holiday did not copyright her singing the song Bessie Smith did and what's the relationship between the two well they're both singers they're both um, artists can't you see what love and heartaches done to me I'm not the same as I used to be this is my last affair I think that's a pretty good refrain I think so well, thank you very, very much for this interview. Well, thanks for asking, and hope to talk to you again.
0: The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to The Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.